football, some like darts. I like knitting and the simpler arts. Half a dozen needles, an ounce or two of wool, fills my cup of happiness, chock full. I'm a little knit with knitting all the day. That's how I keep dull care away. Hem stitch, lock stitch, plain and pearl, a present occupation for a good little girl. History happened everywhere. Hello and welcome. My name is Pete Goddard and I'm here in the HHE studio with the tricoteurs to my French aristocrat. It's Mr. Ryan Weir. What's a tricoteur? You know, in the French Revolution times, as people were executed, there was old ladies knitting at the front of the stage. They were called tricoteurs. Oh yeah, that would definitely be me. Except I'd be worried that I'd get blood and guts all over my new knitting. Well, that was part of the appeal, I think. They were famously uh, inflappable, these tricoteurses. Inflappable tricoteurs. <laughs> <laughs> So, Ryan, last time the Dursleiter gave us knitting in Scandinavia in the 16th century. So, how's it been, Ryan? Well, look, Pete, in today's episode, we are going to unfurl some historic yarns that might not be what you expect. From the backs of sheep to the socks on your feet, we're going back to the Middle Ages to a time when weaving left people wanting. You'll get your knitters in a twist when we find out what happens when you turn a mitten inside out, and you're going to meet the medieval medic whose miraculous metal helped mend a mutilated man. So whip out your needles and grab your balls of wool, and prepare to be left in stitches as we follow a thread north into the wild, wild world of knitting. Welcome to the Viking land. Welcome to the land of the midnight sun. Welcome to Scandinavia. Well, Ryan, whilst I am thrilled and excited to find out about knitting, first of all, I want to know where we are. Scandinavia, where is it? Where does it begin? Where does it end? Well, Pete, it's a really good question. So to locate Scandinavia, you're going to need to grab a map, specifically one that has Europe on it. And then you're going to need to head to the most northern part of that, up past Germany, and there you're going to find three kingdoms. The first is connected to mainland Europe. It's the smallest of the three, and this is Denmark. It's the uh, spiritual home of bacon. I like it already. Yes, now head north from there, over the icy waters of the Skagerrak, and you're going to find Norway, with its coastline filled with flowing fjords. Norway. Yes, way. Uh, then head east, and you're in the home of Muppet Chefs and Sexy Blondes. The largest of the Scandinavian countries, Pete, it's Sweden. <laughs> now, you'd be forgiven, Pete, if you thought that Finland, Iceland, and maybe the Faroe Islands, and Greenland, and maybe even the Åland Islands, uh, they might have been part of Scandinavia too. You know, like I did before I started researching this. <laughs> and I did, definitely. <laughs> yeah. But you would be wrong. What you're actually thinking of is the Nordic country. Oh. The name Scandinavia, it comes from early Germanic people who looked over at the region across the water and called it Skartinavjo, Dangerous Island, which apparently referred to the waters around the peninsula rather than the people that lived there. <laughs> the marauders, that's where they come from. Anyway, today though, the word Scandinavia signals less of a warning, Pete, and it conjures instead images of snow, skiing, reindeer, warm sweaters, saunas, stories by Astrid Lindgren and, of course, flat-pack furniture. And reliable vehicles. Good old Volvo. Now, travel to Scandinavia, Pete, you're going to find rugged coastline, dense green forests, glowing northern lights and funky modern cities that blend a rich historical heritage with cutting-edge design and technology. I must say I'm a massive, massive fan of Scandinavia and if Sweden wants to adopt me, I'm ready with the papers right here if someone wants to come and sign for me. I fear you may have to join a very long line of people. <laughs> now, we're going to combine the total areas of Denmark, Norway and Sweden together, and we're going to get an approximate size of around 880,000 square kilometres. That's around 340,000 square miles, which is just over one and a half times larger than a France. Oh, OK. I thought it was going to be a bit more than that, but clearly not. No, it is still a huge area, and with only 21.5 million people living on it, that is a sub-region of Europe with lots and lots of rural country. Ah, that's why everyone gets a lake of their own. <laughs> 
Language-wise, P, each nation in Scandinavia speaks their own official language, so Danish, Norwegian, and Swedish. The religion is Christianity. Each country has its own national animal, so Denmark has the swan, Norway has the lion, and Sweden has the elk, or the moose. Two of those were unexpected. Really? What, what was the other unexpected the one? The swan, I thought, was uh, unexpected. Huh, okay, well, there you go. Uh, it doesn't have an official flag, Pete, so I asked an AI art generator to combine the Swedish blue flag, which has a yellow cross on it, with the Norwegian red flag, which has a blue cross on it, and the Danish red flag, which has a white cross on it, and the combination is awesome. And I'm going to post it on social media, and I insist that everyone start using it from now on. No, oh, I love it. Oh, that is absolutely epic. Yeah, it's all geometric. It's great. We should definitely share that on social media. Everyone, check it out. It's definitely the future. Now, there is no one national anthem for Scandinavia, so I've had to pick a song that I think best sums up the spirit of the region. It's called Gamal Jägersmarsch, or Old Hunter's March. It's a military march, so perfect for a national anthem. Nice. And it sounds a little something like this. march to this you'd have to march fast <laughs> and that's why the scandinavian armies were exhausted after the first two miles <laughs> it's so much fun it is isn't it rousing so what is this this is not a national anthem obviously is it just a song it's just a, a military march all right could be a good opening ceremony for the Scandinavian Games. You could just see them. Here come the Norwegians. And here come the Danish. Everyone marching around waving their flags. Or indeed the one flag. There's only one flag, the Scandinavian flag. It's so cool. I'm not ashamed to admit, Pete, that I have had this as my alarm clock in the morning for a week <laughs> this week. I'm not kidding either. That's one way to get your best foot forward in the morning, is it? Come on, <laughs> Ryan, make the best of the day. <laughs> All right, there you go. How about that? Ah, jolly good, Ryan. I like that very much. Scandinavia facts! I'm ready. Denmark has a tradition that takes place every 31st of January. Oh my gosh, that's today when we're recording. That is today, 31st of January. How about that? Now, named after a Danish naval officer, the tradition of the Olfert Fischer coin toss involves tossing a coin on January 31st, i.e. today. Today! Now, if it lands on heads, the year is going to be favourable. And if it lands on tails, it's going to be... You're going to die. Unfavourable. <laughs> <laughs> now, it is a quirky superstition, Pete, but given that we are recording on the 31st of January, I thought maybe we should give it a go. So, here's a coin you are going to flip it for everybody listening and give them either a good year or a bad oh, year oh come on i can't take that kind of pressure but i'm gonna do it you are gonna do it shut your ears if you don't want to hear everyone which way around was it remind me heads if it's gonna be favorable heads favorable tails it will be unfavorable okay here we I'm go i'm just gonna put in the punk satorny peat music now from groundhog day <laughs> <laughs> I'm genuinely nervous now. <laughs> no pressure, Pete. <laughs> it's heads! It's heads, everyone! We're going to have a good year! Hooray! Show it. Yeah, it really was heads. Heads, everyone! We're having a great time. Hurrah! I'm not doing that again next year. That was too tense. <laughs> that would have been hard to pick up from, wouldn't it? If uh, Right, everyone. Good luck so, out there. Sorry about that, guys. <laughs> condemned you to another year of lockdown or something <laughs> right uh next scandinavian fact norway peter there is a town in norway where it is illegal to die oh yeah the town is called long Yerbrien. it has a law which forbids you from dying there <laughs> is that an effective law or is it, is it well, not to the deterrent you might hope <laughs> <laughs> apparently <laughs> the reason is is that you can't be buried there it's so cold there that the permafrost prevents anyone from being buried in it because you just won't decompose essentially you're just archiving yourself for future yeah. explorers <laughs> <laughs> filed for future reference <laughs> yeah. 
So yeah, as such, burials are forbidden on Long Yerbien. Uh, so if you are about to die, what they do is they ship you off to the mainland where you can then go and rot in the ground there. Oh, I thought they could at least cremate you and use you to grit the roads. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Your last act in this world to be service to others. <laughs> Right, Swedish fact. Every week from 2011 to 2018, Sweden's official social media account was handled by a different member of the public. Nice. So this was an initiative launched in December of 2011 by uh, the Swedish Institute and Visit Sweden. And the project, known as Curators of Sweden, involved handing over the country's official Twitter account, which is at Sweden, to a different Swedish citizen every week. Wow. Yeah, it was seen as an experiment in national branding and social media, the idea being to present a diverse and multifaceted image of Sweden to the world. Nice. So, ordinary Swedes from various backgrounds took control of the account to showcase the country through their own eyes. It ultimately lasted seven years, during which time 365 citizens took their turn moderating the feed. There were teachers, farmers, writers, artists, even a priest came along, and they were a allowed to post whatever they wanted. Opinions, aspects of Swedish culture, society and politics and such. But there were some instances where controversial tweets were posted, as you might expect when you just hand it over to the public. <laughs> uh, there were some edgy jokes and some negative comments about immigration. Notably, the very first curator of the feed, a guy called Jack Werner, he earned himself the nickname The Masturbating Swede. <laughs> <laughs> that's the nickname that's going to stick, isn't it? Let's face it. <laughs> yeah, after he posted several tweets about his uh, favourite pleasure activity. Crikey. Well, Ryan, this gives me an idea. If we want to promote the podcast, mm -hmm. all we have to do is find the Swede who's running the Twitter account for today and get them to recommend us. I thought you meant hand it over to uh, listeners of the show and then they can post for us. I'm not sure how we'd rig that, but uh, if you are a listener to the show, please promote the show. So even if you're not Swedish, we don't mind. Yeah, it's interesting though. It did inspire the Irish. Uh, it, they they saw it as a massive success, and they've done the same. They started in the year 2012, and they're still going strong today, 12 years later. How about that? Wow, this feels like the kind of thing that we can't be trusted to do as a nation. Yeah, for sure. Can you imagine? Good grief. Hey, Pete. Hey, Ryan. I've knitted you a jumper. Oh, thanks, mate. That's really thoughtful. Wait, this isn't a jumper. It is a jumper. It's a woolen doll of Dick Fosbury. Who? The inventor of the Fosbury flop. And? Well, he was a high jumper. He was a famous jumper. Get it? Oh, right. Well, thanks, I guess. <laughs> You're welcome. Also, I knitted you a sweater. Is it Richard Nixon during the televised debates in 1960 with John F. Kennedy? It is! They said that his sweating looked so bad on TV, it lost him the election. Right, well, this is all very nice, Ryan, but I'm really cold. Well, I've got you this. Oh, a real jumper. Oh, it looks nice and warm too. Thanks, mate. No problem. Wait, what, what is this on the front? It says, you're an idiot. <laughs> yeah, I saw it and I thought of you. Ah, because that's what I'm always saying to you. No, because you're an idiot. No, it says you're the idiot. No, it says you're the idiot. No, no, it says you're an idiot. No, it says you're the idiot. No, it's clearly you're an idiot. Look at it, it says you are the idiot. It says you're an idiot. <laughs> Well, Ryan, you've actually educated me significantly. I now actually know what Scandinavia is, which I clearly didn't before. <laughs> but, uh, you know, what happened in the past, man? What's the history? Tell me. All right. You want to know some history, Pete? I do. I'm going to tell you some history. Get ready for it to be laid down in front of you like a schmoogersbird. <laughs> <laughs> now, around 12,000 BCE, the sheets of ice from the last ice age start to retreat, leaving this pristine new land for Germanic hunter-gatherer tribes to discover. So they move north, they build some megalithic monuments, they carve some images on rock walls for folks to marvel at millennia later, and then time passes, during which time they develop their own culture and societies, and around 1,800 BCE, they hop on the bronze train. They they make some cool tools, they make some cool weapons, which they love so much they insist on being buried with. 
Now, a thousand years later, their culture has unified to the point that we actually start to see them being referred to as the Norse. Ah. You'll have heard of the Norsemen. I definitely have. So the Norsemen start trading with neighbouring tribes. They adopt new methods of farming and craftsmanship uh, to their repertoire, most notably adding iron weapons to their list of things to be buried with. You can take it with you, as they say. (laughs) (laughs) that famous expression. (laughs) Now, another thousand years passes and we're in the early medieval period. And emerging from the Norse come the Vikings. A group of people whose passion for taking other people's stuff quickly establishes them a bad boy reputation across much of Europe, the North Atlantic and the Mediterranean. Now, during this period, we see the emergence of the three distinct kingdoms, Denmark, Norway and Sweden. And almost immediately, as you might expect, fighting breaks out as they look to protect and solidify their borders. By the end of the Age of the Vikings, around 1066, Jesus Christ comes a calling. The old beliefs of mighty hammers and giant serpents get pushed out in favour of burning bushes and turning water into wine. Vastly more plausible. Now, Christianity is so popular, Pete, that it reshapes the entire region, both culturally but also politically. And under the auspices of their new Christian god, an uneasy union is formed between the three kingdoms, and they are brought together under one ruler, Eric of Pomerania. Now, uh, he was coronated in the city of Kalmar in 1397, but he was deposed just five years later. Side note, Pete, after losing his crown, Eric went on to become a pirate. (laughs) And he insisted on everyone calling him the Pirate King. Oh, well, I mean, it's like when you get fired from a job. You think it's the end of the world, but you could become a pirate next. You don't know. (laughs) Just become a pirate. King one day, pirate the next. (laughs) Now, despite the loss of the monarch and lots of instances of bloody resistance and rebellion, the union of the kingdoms holds up. It actually lasts for a couple hundred years until 1520, in fact, during our time period, when the Swedes decide that they're going to break that agreement by just electing their own king. Denmark and Norway, they are keen to keep the union going between themselves and they continue to give it a go for another 300 years, during which time they adopt a new Lutheran theology, which they pick up during the Protestant Reformation, which was kind of the trendy new thing going viral across Europe. Yeah, that's the one where you believe in the power of a Luther. (laughs) No, it's the TV show Luther. (laughs) They believe in a fictional detective. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Sweden now just going it alone, takes a slightly different tack and they decide that they are going to just expand their territory and they forcefully establish themselves as a great power of Europe. Which is surprising because it was quite successful and they lord it over their neighbours for about 100 years. That is until Russia and several other northern states just have enough of that nonsense. (laughs) Uh, They band together and they just hand Sweden a can of whoop-ass that causes them to retreat back to their area and just go... Yep, yep, it's fine. We're we're happy here. Had a good time. That was fun. (laughs) Coming home now. We were going to do it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Now, in the early 1800s, Pete, Norway tells Denmark, things have gotten a little stale between us. Ooh, spicing it up. I think we should go on a break. Oh. Heartbroken. Reluctantly, Denmark agrees to the split. (laughs) (laughs) Only to find that Norway goes next door and immediately partners up with Sweden. It was her next door all along. I knew it. (laughs) That hussy. (laughs) So, So Sweden and Norway get together for the next hundred years until 1905 when, perhaps inevitably... Was never going to last me. <laughs> they break up too. Oh, much deserved. Exactly. And that just leaves everybody available and looking. Oh, international Tinder. <laughs> <laughs> now that brings us to the 20th century, during which time the Nazis occupied Denmark and Norway. While Sweden turns a blind eye, declares neutrality, and just busies itself opening up a small-scale mail-order business in the village of Elmhult called Ikea. Post-war things settle down, there's growth and prosperity for all, and in 1972 the world rejoices at the formation of the Swedish pop group ABBA. Took a chance on me. 
That was what Denmark was saying to Norway. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, talking of Denmark, they joined the European Union in 1973, followed by Sweden in 1995. And that brings us to today, where Scandinavia frequently tops the charts as the place on Earth with the highest quality of life. Each nation in Scandinavia has a strong commitment to democracy with some of the most progressive social policies in the world. They have extensive public services, gender equality, children's rights, and a strong emphasis on a healthy work-life balance. All of which, Pete, results in the highest standards of living in the world. But the most expensive bars in the world. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> Looking at you, Oslo. <laughs> the people are gorgeous, the landscapes even more so, and if you haven't visited, I strongly recommend taking a trip to have a Loki round. Oh! Loki round. Yeah, I like it, we done there. I was pleased with uh, that one. I have visited and I've never felt uglier. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a place for the ugly, Pete. Uh. Yes, hello? Sweden, it's me! Uh. Finland! I live next door! Oh, right. I heard all the music and I thought, you know, since we're neighbours... Yeah? You know, we're neighbours, so maybe I could join in the fun! Uh, I see. <laughs> it's just, I see Norway in there and Denmark and seeing as how we literally live right next door to each other... Yeah, Finland, I'm sorry, my friend. You see, if we let you into the scandal party, we'd have to let Iceland in. And then Greenland would want to come too, and you know what they're like. Oh, those guys, I think they're hilarious! Yes, well, exactly. So you're saying it's just you, the cool kids at the scandal party? Eh? I'm afraid so, Finland. Uh, sorry, uh, goodbye. I won't take this line down! I'm taking this to the EU! You haven't heard the last of this? What is knitting and how does it relate to Scandinavia in the 16th century? Good question to ask, Pete. Knitting. <laughs> Knit one, pearl one, cast on, bind off, frogging, gauge, stockinette stitch. That's right, Pete. We're talking knitting. Are we? I thought we were doing some sort of uh, Mr. Miyagi kung fu thing there for a moment. <laughs> no. All words associated with knitting. Now, Knitting, originally from an old English word meaning to knot, it's the method by which yarn or thread is manipulated into rows of interconnected loops that form a fabric, which most people associate with knitted clothes. Because no doubt, Pete, you will have owned something knitted at some point in your life. Literally wearing a jumper now, which could be described as knitted. I would almost say it was definitely a knitted jumper, that's right. <laughs> it could be a winter scarf, some woolen socks, or that jumper that Mima gifted you for Christmas that's too tight under the arms and you wouldn't be seen dead wearing it in public anyway. And why didn't you just get me the Lego set I asked for? Because I'm not wearing this and I don't care if I'm being rude. I'm going to my room. Yeah, Mima. God. <laughs> <laughs> but surprisingly, knitted clothing is only just one small part of a much larger global knitting industry that is worth over 500 billion dollars. Oh man, there's knitting millionaires. <laughs> yeah, billionaires, no doubt. It is an industry that produces all sorts of knitted fabrics for things like airbags, medical materials, insulation blankets, geotextiles, fishing nets, bulletproof vests, oil spill containment equipment, as well as all sorts of uh, air and liquid filtration systems. Knitting as a manufacturing process allows products to be created that are flexible, breathable, warm, and insulating, durable, versatile, and importantly, quick to produce. Ah, and you don't necessarily need an old lady with a couple of needles. You don't have to, but it's definitely helpful to have one. <laughs> <laughs> now, the origins of knitting are lost to time, but it is believed to have started somewhere in the Middle East around the 11th century. In fact, the earliest known example is from Egypt at this time, and it's a pair of finely knitted socks that were designed to be worn with sandals by having like a V between the toes. Socks with sandals, that is a justification for British tourists for decades now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've been doing it since the 11th century. There you are. <laughs> now, with the expansion of the Islamic Empire in the centuries that then follow, knitting hits Europe around the 13th century. And the earliest example is a pair of silk pillowcases that were knitted with little symbols to protect the owners during their sleep. 
Now, if like me, it surprises you that knitting wasn't something that, you know, humans have been doing since early man. After all, it's just like wool and a couple yeah, of sticks, I would, right? I would have thought this goes way back, but is that perhaps because just the wool doesn't stick around very well? Well, that's the thing. It is actually a hotly contested subject among historians. So the problem is, as you rightly point out, any ancient knitted fabric is going to be organic. And so on the whole, it's going to decay and disappear and be hard to find, right? But that hasn't stopped some fragments popping up. So for example, one fragment was found in the Netherlands, which appears to date back to the second century, which suggests that the technique could actually have been known and practiced during the time of the Romans, over a thousand years earlier than previously thought. There are even some arguments that say it might be even older than that, going back to the seventh century BCE, oh, wow. with some historical researchers pointing to the character of Penelope in Homer's epic poem, The Odyssey, who is described in there as unraveling her work each night. Oh, she is. Which they say is a direct reference to her doing knitting, unravelling her knitting. I, I've never really thought about what her undoing her work might have represented, but yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah, fair point. It's less glamorous for Penelope to be knitting in my mind. I had assumed she was weaving something, but ah, I'll, no, I'll change not. my mental model. So <laughs> with a couple of knitting needles now, you can just picture that. <laughs> oh, come on, Odysseus, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> clack, 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 clack. <laughs> Anyway, point is, by the late Middle Ages, the production of knitted goods are underway in cities across Europe. Men and women are learning the skill, guilds are being formed, and a whole industry emerges. In 1589, British inventor William Lee, he creates a simple machine for knitting. It doesn't make a tremendous impact, but a couple of hundred years later, in the 18th and the 19th centuries, it does inspire a couple of industrial engineers to build larger and more complex mechanical versions that could mass-produce knitted goods at large scale. And from that point, things change forever. In fact, things change so fast that a group of English workers at the time, nicknamed the Luddites, they protest against the use of these machines, arguing that they have taken our jobs. <laughs> now, unfortunately, after some of the Luddites then sabotage and demolish a few of these machines, the government cracks down on them, passing a law which says that uh, any destruction of industrial machinery is now a capital crime. Capital crikey. Punishable by death. Blimey. I bet they didn't realise at the time that they would be giving their name in perpetuity to people who were afraid of technology. <laughs> <laughs> and so... With hand knitters kind of out of business now, at the industrial level at least, hand-knitted goods move into the home. It's the cheap way of making clothing and blankets, which comes in handy during the two world wars, and loads of knitted materials are going to be required to keep everybody warm. Side note, did you know that spies used to send encoded messages knitted into fabric? So they'd just send like a woolly jumper with a message written in it, because they'd use like a different stitch or a different pattern or something, miss a loop here or there, and all of that would have a special meaning and could be decoded later oh right i thought at first you meant there was a jumper with we will attack at midnight on it <laughs> <laughs> and that wasn't very impressive but now i understand where you're coming from i get it now <laughs> oh, i love it anyway look after the war knitted clothing becomes less necessary and basically less popular and so knitting kind of becomes split between the mass manufacturers and the world of arts and crafts you see hobbyists now making one-off items and just enjoying the process, sharing patterns with each other. And today, due in part to the COVID-19 pandemic, there is a growing interest in knitting, especially as a form of wellness and therapy. So if you're looking for a meditative process, uh, which is recognised by medical professionals as a productive way to reduce stress and improve motor skills, that's your baby. Go pick up a couple of uh, knitting needles and a ball of wool. When I was a small child, I used to knit. I found it quite relaxing, so I will endorse that myself. It's great fun to sit there watching TV and have a little knit. Yeah, I was not good at it. I lacked the sort of overall focus and concentration. I'd drop stitches regularly. I don't think it matters. Just keep going. It's all, it's all <laughs> part of it. What would Bob Ross say? He'd say, it's just a happy little accident. There you go. <laughs> anyway, Pete, that's some background to knitting. What I'm sure you and the audience really want to know about is knitting in Scandinavia during the 16th century, right? Well, part of me is wondering how long you can avoid addressing it. So let's find that out as well. <laughs> OK, yeah, let's find that out <laughs> after this. <laughs> 
Squire! Yes, my lord. Suit me up. Oh, the Black Knight's back again, is he, sire? Of course. That guy doesn't know when to give up. No problem. Lift your arms up, sire, and let's get this chainmail on you. Very good. Squire? Yes, my lord. What is this? Ah, well, a travelling merchant sold me a new set of chainmail, and thinking as to how the old set was like falling to bits and all, I threw that one away, and I got you this new set. And it's definitely chainmail? Definitely. Because it's very soft. Yeah, that's the innovative loose-knit technology, sire. The merchant said it would be good at keeping you warm and comfortable. But it will withstand a blade, though, right? Well, yeah. You sure? Well, I mean, he didn't specify, sire, but yeah. Well, it is warm and much more comfortable than that cold metal. Uh, And you say it will fend off an axe blow? Probably, yeah. All right, then. Off we go. To battle! Yay! Alrighty, Ryan, you can avoid no more. Or maybe you can, I don't know. Let's find out. Knitting, (laughs) Scandinavia, 16th century, go! Okay, so Scandinavia has a long history with harsh winters. 40% of Norway, 15% of Sweden, both in the north of the Arctic Circle. So temperatures there can reach as low as minus 30 degrees centigrade or minus 22 degrees Fahrenheit. And winters there can last up to six months. So as long as people have lived in Scandinavia, they've needed warm clothes. Now, as you might imagine, Pete, this has influenced a lot of the Scandinavian fashion, with Norway, Sweden and Denmark all producing clothing that reflects their response to dealing with the cold. So we see Norwegian sweaters, which are now world-renowned for their distinctive patterns and superior warmth. Everyone pretty much wears one at Christmas. And those trace back to the 19th century, where they were knitted by fishermen's wives to protect their husbands against the harsh, cold climate at sea. Similarly, the small village of Lovika in the northern part of Sweden, they started knitting mittens, and today those are recognised around the world for their warmth and their unique patterns. The Danish even have a concept peak called huga, which uh, loosely translates as something like cosiness and refers to the need for warmth and comfort during those long, dark winters. Huga. I must admit I'm a fan of a cuddly big sweater. I once investigated buying a Faroese sweater inspired by one of those Scandi noir dramas, and then I found that I cannot afford a Faroese dress sweater, but they are lovely. (laughs) Very expensive, yeah. And of course, Pete, more recently, you've got the Scandinavian big brands, names like Heli Hansen. I've heard of them. And Fjölraven. Yes, yes. Those guys have become sort of now world famous for their winter wear, which blends Scando clothing with modern technology. Point being that the Scandinavian ability to adapt to and embrace their cold environment has always been important. And we see that historically. The earliest peoples, they were making clothing from reindeer hide and fur. One, because it was warm and water resistant, and two, because it came packed with loads of tasty meat. (laughs) Free dinner with every jacket. (laughs) But as time moved on, communities got bigger, larger scale hunting of reindeer was not going to be so practical. So around 6,000 years ago, we see the introduction of ruminants to the region, things like deer and goats and sheep, all of which are ideally suited to dealing with the climate and the terrain. They can also produce milk and meat and cheese, which is very handy and tasty, but they are principally then farmed for their hides and their wool. Wool in particular becomes the star of the show though, because it provides one excellent insulation, it's light, it's breathable, and of course it's water resistant. And so very quickly sheep become one of the most common animals in the area. Estimates suggest there were literally millions of them across the entire region by the end of the 16th century. And it's no different to today. There are an estimated 3 million sheep across Norway, Sweden and Denmark in the year 2024. And so, looking back at the 16th century, we see a lot of people with a lot of sheep, with wool now forming a significant part of the region's economy. Different provinces are raising various different breeds of sheep, each with their own variation of texture and quality. You know, some are finer than others, but all are high quality. And every year, when the snow on the mountain starts to melt, new grass starts to grow, and the farmers lead their sheep out into the mountains and the forests. There, the sheep roam around freely in the wild for most of the year until autumn rolls around and they're led back home to be sheared or slaughtered. 
Now the wool is then cleaned to remove the dirt and the grease and then it's spun using a drop spindle to make threads of yarn. Now I say a drop spindle, uh, it's basically a small portable wooden tool for making yarn. You just hang it down and spin it around and it twists the thread. But it's worth noting that during our time period in the 16th century there were some other wealthier farms that had invested in this crazy new fangled technology called a spinning wheel. I'll never catch on. It's a yeah. fad. <laughs> you know, like the one that Sleeping Beauty pricks herself on in that movie. Ah, uh, yes. Can't remember the name of it, though. I think it was uh, Pricky Finger Lady. <laughs> Snoozy, sexy, pricky finger lady. <laughs> anyway, yes, uh, just like that one. And that spinning wheel allows them to be more quick, more efficient in making yarn. Now, what did they do with all this spun wool, Pete? Uh, I'm going to guess they knitted them into jumpers. Incorrect! Oh. No, what they did do was they used it in weaving. So most homes had a basic loom, and that helped them to weave a uh, woolen fabric that was used for all sorts of variety of things. So, uh, in fact, almost all of their things, tunics and trousers and cloaks and dresses, all woven on this little frame called a loom. Now, woven clothing, though, is often loose and not very flexible. Stockings, for example, were just going to be woven fabric that just folded down over the toes. It didn't cling to your body at all. There's no elasticity to it. Just wrapping fabric around you. It was heavy and it was bulky. And worst of all, for the Scandinavians, the tightness of the weave didn't help trap air for insulation. But... The reason for them doing it was because it was hard wearing. It lasted for ages and it was just simply how clothes were made then and had been since the Neolithic era. Time for change, I say. Yes, exactly. So it would have been then with some interest to the people living in Scandinavia during the 16th century that a new fabric was slowly being introduced. Not as fast as I would have liked for this episode. <laughs> But slowly introduced nonetheless. A material that looked like their woven cloth, but was more flexible, was lighter and better at insulating. It was knitted fabric. Oh, he's bringing it home. And we're going to talk about that after this. <laughs> I'm excited. Hello and welcome to Sheared or Slaughtered, the game show where one lucky sheep plays to win a brand new haircut and avoid heading to a horrible death. So, let's meet the contestant. Hello, my name is Flossie. I enjoy frolicking in fields, eating grass, and just being alive. Ha <laughs> ha, wonderful. Well, you know the rules of the game. There's two doors to walk through. One that leads to a shearing, and one that'll lead to slaughter. So, let's start the countdown. Do I really have to choose? Pick a door, Flossie. Can I pass? Nope. Maybe someone else can go first. Oh, Flossie, we're about to enter the electric prod challenge. Oh, no. Okay, okay. Here I go. Courage, Flossie. Courage. <laughs> oh, well, that is a shame. Sorry, Flossie. <laughs> Well, that's it for today. Join us tomorrow as Daisy the Cow plays for Milked or Murdered. Okay, Ryan, you've, I was going to say you've done it, but you've promised you've done it. I haven't seen the results yet. Tell me about knitting actually in the 16th century in Scandinavia. This is your opportunity. You can do it. This was all set up, Pete, for this. You're going to love this. <laughs> God, I hope you're going to love this. Right. It is unclear, Pete, which Scandinavian country first held the tradition for knitting. We know that the oldest knitted uh, fragment was found in a grave in Norway, and that's dated to somewhere around 1525. And a uh, knitted hat was found in a well near Trondheim in northern Norway, and that dates to around 1575. Phil annoyed for the guy who was looking down the well and his hat fell off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to Mr. hook it with the bucket on the 
well. There's, there's a 16th century dropping of the mobile phone, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and we know that these were likely imported, uh, possibly from England, uh, which was a regular trading partner with Norway and a place where knitting was incredibly popular during the 16th century, kind of got there ahead of the Scando countries. Uh, in fact, side note, Elizabeth I, uh, she established knitting schools across England to act as a programme to help educate the poor. Oh, interesting. Yeah, but equally, they could also have been imported from France too. Uh, knitting guilds had long been established in France by this point, and they were renowned exporters of knitted goods, especially knitted silks, with French silk stockings, camisoles and mittens finding their way into the homes of the rich and the wealthy throughout Europe. That was a sudden change of pace from stockings and camisoles to mittens. <laughs> yeah, it's a sexier time then, Pete, you just don't get it. <laughs> Either way, records do show that knitted items had begun to be used in Norway during our time period, which is great and a huge relief to me. <laughs> uh, there is one Norwegian shipping inventory I found which documented in 1567 on its list, one pair of old and worn knit stockings. Hey! <laughs> yeah, old and worn. <laughs> so, you and know. you thought, I can build a podcast around those used socks. <laughs> yeah, so let me tell you more about those. <laughs> <laughs> uh, those, uh, the old and worn knit stockings, they'd been brought in from the Faroe Islands, uh, uh, where they had been knitted there. A later inventory, dated to 1594, so scraping the end of our time period, that includes four pairs of stockings, one leather, one cloth, and two knitted. Leather stockings? Hell yeah, Pete. Oh, now Rock we're really getting racy. <laughs> <laughs> So the first record of an organised attempt at trying to teach knitting in Norway is dated to the year 1600, which I'm going to include because it's 1500 to 1600. And uh, it <laughs> mirrors what was happening in England. Uh, Norway was using it as a source of income for beggars and orphans. So they'd learn how to do it and then be able to go out and make a bit of money. A little bit later, outside of our time period, in 1630, there are records which show a small industry has set up of uh, knitting exporters in the coastal counties of Rogaland and uh, Trondelag in western Norway. And we even know the name of the first recorded Norwegian knitter. How about that? Go for it. Tell me the name of the first recorded Norwegian knitter. <laughs> Again, just outside of our time period, it's a woman named Lisbeth Pedersdatter. Ah. Uh, records tell us that in 1634, she was a vagabond that knitted stockings to earn money for food and clothing, but who was accused of witchcraft for offering to, and get this Pete, heal those with illness and suffering using natural remedies and black arts. She's a monster! How awful. <laughs> Burn the witch. She said she'd make me feel better using natural remedies. Get her. So, 60-year-old Lisbeth Pete, she was held as an inmate in a women's prison for a total of six months, where she underwent torture uh, but continued to claim her innocence. Finally, she was found guilty of, in quotes, having solicited help from the devil and was sentenced to death by being burned at the stake. Oh, boo. That's a sad story. Yeah. So those were the early days for knitting in Norway. But had it made its way to the rest of Scandinavia? Well, in 1982, a knitting needle holder was found in Denmark that was dated to sometime around 1570. And a woven jacket bodice was also found in Copenhagen with knitted sleeves sewn on that also dates to around the end of the 16th century. OK, I'm going to stop you there and rewind. A knitting needle holder, you say? Yeah, a holder. For how, do you know, how do you know what a knitting... It's a box. It's a long, thin box. How do they know it was a knitting needle holder? Do you know what? I hadn't considered it would be a box. I imagine... Do you know what I imagine? <laughs> just like a little a little wooden block with two holes in it. And you just... <laughs> just to clip them together. Yeah. Well, you, you just shove them in the it holes. It could be. It could be. It could I be, right? Know. You don't know. We need a picture of this thing. A knitting needle holder. Well, there you go. So there you go. But in 1974, Pete... Everything changes. No. <laughs> High drama in the world of knitting history. <laughs> A research team heads to Dalarna in Sweden, where they investigate an excavation site at an old copper mining town called Fallon. Now, there they find something that would, in the words of Birgitta Dandenel and Ulla Danielsson, authors of the book Twinned Knitting, prove to be so interesting that it alone would set in motion extensive research throughout the region and the rest of the country. 
Well, that's your trailer for the Netflix series, isn't it? <laughs> Look what I found. Can it be? <gasps> this changes everything. This changes it all. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and it, so it starts with the researchers picking their way through a large pile of waste material. <laughs> <laughs> Archaeology is so glamorous. It's just like Indiana Jones, isn't it? Yeah. So they dig down and they are surprised to find a single mitten buried in soil. It's a fingerless glove knitted from fine wool yarn. Now, initially believed to be from the 19th century, further investigation based on analysis of the soil layers dates it to the 1680s, which of course be is out of our time range. But in 2017, <laughs> it was analysed again, and this time with carbon-14 dating. Ah, yeah, baby. That's the good stuff. That's the good stuff. They rolled out the good stuff. <laughs> and what did they find, Pete? Is it 16th century? It's mid-16th century. <laughs> right in our time period. But that's not the extraordinary thing, Pete. It isn't? No. How could this get any more exciting? <laughs> because while at first glance the mitten seems like an ordinary knitted garment, right? When they look more closely at it, they found this was no ordinary knitted glove at all. <laughs> <laughs> keep, keep going <laughs> your face now typically a normal knitted fabric is created using a single strand of yarn with loops that then combine to create an even texture that we're familiar with today look at your jumper that's what it looks like got it but when they turned the glove inside out what they found will shock you <laughs> <laughs> it's a transformer it became a car <laughs> No, what they found was that the fabric looked totally different on the other side. Totally different? <laughs> totally different. <laughs> what they found was horizontal ridges of twisted yarn that run from left to right. No. Now, now obviously, this confused the researchers. Obviously. No one had seen this type of knitting before. And so they did a whole bunch of research and nothing came up. They couldn't find any examples of this material where it's regular sort of knitting on one side and this ridged sort of material on the other. So what did they do, Pete? They went and consulted with some of the elder ladies in Dalana. Oh, no. And what they discovered is that this medieval mitten had actually been produced using a nearly forgotten art form known as tvoendstikning. <laughs> Easy for you to say. <laughs> yeah, which means two-end knitting or twinned knitting. And it describes a method of knitting using two separate yarns. So if you think about it, you're knitting, you have one thread that comes off of that, right? And you yeah. hoop that over, yeah. Well, this uses two threads. Each one is twisted between the other to create an effect which replicates the appearance of sort of normal knitting on one side of the fabric and a ridged effect on the other. The old ladies revealed that this kind of twinned knitting, or knitting from both ends of the same ball of wool, had once been common practice in Dalana, but it had sort of just faded away over their lifetime in favour of, you know, the more faster technique of knit and purl, you know, the thing that we're most familiar with. And what they revealed was that twinned knitting was so commonplace in Dalana that it had originally only been known as stickening or knitting. Ah. So this was the real knitting of that place. But as one-end knitting grew in popularity, the older technique just became known as two-end knitting and eventually it just stopped altogether. So yeah, so the researchers continued to interview these old ladies of Delana and what they found was that, that twinned knitting had once been preferred because of the ridges on the inside. So this creates a unique structure which behaves more like a woven fabric. If you remember, it was more rigid and sort of hard and more harder wearing yeah and then on one side and then a knitted side which is the warmer like more flexible side on the other so it's ah. strong it's sturdy and it's resistant to the elements but it also has that benefits of extra insulation blended fabric blended fabric basically twinned knitting was perfect for use as the material for making work clothes which explains why this mitten was found at an old copper mine it was once a pair of work gloves that had helped protect the hands of a miner who was expected to lift heavy tools and lumps of copper ore in what would have been freezing temperatures so the ladies went on to explain that they weren't just functional either. Twinned knitting allowed the makers to include variations for sort of helping to distinguish the village that 
you came from, even as a way of attracting members of the opposite sex by subtly indicating your marital status. Oh, another sexy mitten. Oh, look at his ridges. <laughs> Vertical. Yeah. So they said that the fabric was most often used using uh, woolen thread, uh, but sometimes they blended it with the fur of winter rabbits too. Oh, that sounds lovely. Yeah, it gave it extra warmth and whiteness. <laughs> they also revealed that they used smaller needles and uh, that the knitting was done standing up. They would walk around doing it rather than sitting down. And you'd have to frequently have to stop to untwirl the ball of wool that you had because as you're twisting the yarn, it would all get twisted up. And the twisting was really important and specific because done wrong and it could cause the yarn to become overly tight. Done well and the fabric was not only firm and stable, but it also retained its shape for much longer than a fabric fabric created just with one thread so i don't know if you've ever had like a woolen jumper and you've stretched it and that's kind of it right it's it's now out of shape this doesn't happen with twin knitting ah. so based on the information provided by the old ladies of delana the researchers concluded that twinned knitting was well known to the peasant population of sweden by the middle of the 1600s they didn't establish if twin knitting originated in Delana, though, or if the technique had been introduced from elsewhere, but they knew it spread quickly and that it still survives today. There are small pockets of areas across Sweden where old ladies teach the new generation the old craft of twin knitting, which is a woven link to a rich cultural past. That's amazing. I'm genuinely impressed and admiring of that. That's, I love it when a craft is brought back from the brink. I love it. It's so cool. And uh, as an aside, Pete, I did want to give some for Tvarentstikning a try. I thought, you know, I could make you a lovely gift, a scarf or something, right? I mean, how difficult can it be? Can it be extremely difficult? <laughs> well, let me read you the instructions from the knitting manual. <laughs> With a two-ply fingering weight wool, create one small sample skein that is spun in the typical direction, i.e. single spun right Z and plied left S. Next, create a sample skein that reverses the twist, but is otherwise as similar to the first skein as possible. Oh, Begin right. working a stockinette swatch in the round or flat using both ends of the first sample skein. And when you're ready, switch to the second skein. Yeah, when I'm ready, I'll let you know. <laughs> so yeah, I think it's best that we leave it to the old folk of Delana. I would say so. Well, they seem nice, didn't they? Ooh, lovely. I've never seen someone so interested in our old knitting patterns, have you? Never seen the like of it. Oh, their little faces just lit up when we got onto twin knitting. Oh, they were so pleased, weren't they? It's funny, I'd have thought they'd have been interested in the other stuff we used to have. I know. I mean, I'm no historian, dear, but you'd think those cold fusion reactors we had back then would be much more up their alley. Ah, yeah, I remember all that clean, renewable energy as far as the eye could see. I know, they don't make it like they used to, do they? No, they don't, dear. It's all solar and wind these days. Well, as long as they're happy, eh? Yeah, you're right. A cup of tea, dear? Ooh, lovely. I'll pop the replicator on and teleport it over to you. Well, Ryan, I have to say I am very impressed. You have managed to actually cover... I, I genuinely thought you'd do some weak link to this whole thing and you've managed to actually get it bang on. Um, <laughs> but I'm looking for a cherry on top. Have you got anything else for us? Weak links, you say? <laughs> <laughs> I do. Weak links, right. Let me think. Do I have something with a weak link? Hmm... <laughs> I feel like you're going to deliver in spades at this point. <laughs> in my final section, Pete, I'm taking something of a left field approach to knitting in Scandinavia during the 1600s, right? And that's because the term knitting, right, <laughs> most commonly refers to the practice of making fabric, as we've discussed, using needles and yarn. However, it is also used metaphorically to describe the healing of bones. Oh, no, I would say that's not a stretch at all. I think that is bang well, on. 
Good, right. Because you might have heard of people referring to broken bones knitting back together, right? Absolutely. Very common. Okay, well, that's because the process of knitting closely resemble how bones heal too. Like knitting with yarn involves interlocking threads to create a fabric, bone healing involves the interlocking of bone cells and tissues to sort of mend a fracture. Now, the process obviously occurs a lot slower, (laughs) but the results are similar with the gradual strengthening of the structural integrity. And so, Pete, for this last story, I'd like to take you on a journey back to the verdant landscape of Vastogotland in Sweden. Let's go. Where, in the year 1150, a group of monks from Alvastra in Ostogotland founded a historic abbey as a beacon of religious significance. Amen. (laughs) Now, for over a hundred years, the monks toil away inside the abbey, until, in my favourite year, 1234, tragedy struck. A disastrous fire breaks out, Pete. It engulfs the building and it tears the abbey to the ground. No! (laughs) Undeterred, the monks embark on a restoration mission, right? And a few decades later, a brand new church stands there, proudly on the grounds. Hallelujah! The new abbey is there for another 200 years until, in 1527, the then king, King Gustav Vasa, he introduces the Reformation to Sweden and promptly confiscates the property. (laughs) That's now mine. And without the care of the monks, the building just falls into decay. 40 years later, in 1566, it's demolished again. Now, sadly, the ruins of the abbey lay dormant for another hundred years, until in the mid-17th century, the winds of change blow again, and this time brought forth by a very wealthy count named Magnus Gabriel de la Gardie. Sounds Spanish. Does indeed. Now, Magnus was struck by the potential of the ruins, and in 1654, he initiates another restoration project, which lasts two decades. And during this time, the ruins of the old abbey are buried under a hill of soil concealing it from the world. That is, until in 1923, an archaeological expedition rocks up and starts to dig through that hill of soil. And what they found is going to shock you. (laughs) Is it now? (laughs) Does it change everything? (laughs) Five years into their excavations, archaeologists make a startling discovery, Pete. A human humerus. That's the uh, long bone between the shoulder and the elbow. I Yes, yes. I know several bones. Especially the humorous ones. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Ironically. It's next to the funny bone. <laughs> hey! Anyway. Uh, yes, so, and uh, they date this humorous, and what they discover is that it's dated sometime. Guess when? In the 16th century. Correct. Hey! Around 1527, they reckon. But that is not the remarkable thing about it, though, Pete. That's good. <laughs> Because the humerus showed signs that it had once been fractured, possibly by an axe or a sword, but had then gone on to heal. But that's not the remarkable thing about it, though, P. No. Because the remarkable thing about it is that this bone bore the marks of a surgical procedure, an operation to encase it entirely in copper plate. What? Yeah, told you it'd startle you. I'm startled. (laughs) Yeah, the researchers had discovered a bone that at some point, while the owner of it still had it in his body, (laughs) he had received an injury that was so bad that medieval surgeons had needed to open the wound up fully, expose the bone, and then meticulously wrap a copper plate around the entire thing, securing it in place with three rivets. Now... It appears that this was not only put there to sort of just stabilise the fracture, but it's thought that copper, because it has a natural antibacterial property, also helped to reduce infection in the area, way before modern antiseptics. In fact, the use of copper in medical operations is not without precedent, Pete. The Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans, even the Aztecs, they all had knowledge of the medicinal properties within copper, and they frequently used it for all sorts of general hygiene, but treating wounds and even purifying water. 
One ancient Egyptian text called the Smith Papyrus, it specifically calls out copper as being super good at sterilizing chest wounds. And here, in Sweden, in the 16th century, we see a medical monk also aware of this fact. In fact, it might have been more common than we think, because there is a 16th century court record which indicates that King Eric XIV of Sweden also suffered an injury to his arm that also required the application of small iron and copper pieces pieces being sewn inside his arm. Yeah. Um, but small pieces in the arm is very different to the scale of operation that the wounded man at Varnum Abbey underwent. We're talking a, a large sheet of copper entirely wrapped around the bone, right? So this is an operation which had gone something like this. First, the surgeon would have fully exposed the wound, enough to be able to assess the damage to the bone. And remember that anesthesia at this time consisted of either opium or alcohol, or a bang on the head. I'll take all three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then they would have uh, set the broken bone. Then they would have had to shape and fit the copper plate around the bone and secure it with rivets, which means hammering it. Uh, and then they would have closed the wound using animal sinew or silk to you know, stitch it up. And then they would have had to monitor this patient for many, many months as they tried their best to sort of avoid infections. It's not a surprise, Pete, to say that surviving a procedure like this would have been extremely rare. <laughs> but in this case, the patient miraculously survived, the copper plate serving to sort of help the body knit the bone back together. In fact, analysis of the bone's healing pattern indicates that they actually survived for many, many years, possibly decades after the treatment. And all thanks to the skill of that medieval surgeon. Yeah, that's a remarkable story. The robustness of the human body sometimes is mind-boggling, isn't it? Although, of course, there are plenty who didn't make it, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, and the psychology of someone who has to deal with that injury afterwards and the pain of it all. And I mean, the, that's serious trauma going on there. A heck of an experience. But I have to say, Ryan, that was not nearly as desperate as I thought it was going to be. That, I think that's perfectly valid. The knitting of bone is a very common expression. I think that is 100% A-OK by me. Hooray! Well, look, there you go. There we are at the end of an epic episode on knitting in Scandinavia during 1500 to 1600. And as we emerge from the tales of history past, Pete, I'll leave you with the wise words of Gudrid Johnston, a knitter of Scandinavian heritage, who wrote that knitting connects us to generations past and future through every stitch we create. It certainly does. And I thank you, Ryan. That was interesting, exciting, fascinating. And a, a couple of times, I couldn't believe what happened next. It was startling. <laughs> it very much was. That was excellent. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Ryan. I think you can pat yourself on the back there. And I do hope the judge feels the same way for the verdict. Thanks, Pete. So I told them I had metal bones and they didn't believe me. Well, I mean, it is quite the story, isn't it, darling? Well, you believe me, though, right? Well, I mean, you were definitely injured, yes, I've seen the scars. Exactly, yes, that's what... Wait, you don't believe me either, do you? Yes, yes I do. Oh, this is just great. I have metal bones. If you say so, dear. I do. I say, I have metal bones. Why don't you believe me? Well, I wasn't there, was I, darling? You know, when they decided to wrap up your bones in metal or whatever it was you said. No, no, you weren't there. And it was bloody painful, let me tell you. Yes, dear, I, I'm sure it was awful. Oh, God, I'm so sick of everyone saying I don't have metal bones. And you know what the guys did? They tried to stick a magnet to my arm. Oh, well, that's silly, dear. Come on. Copper isn't even magnetic. That's what I said. But of course now they've started calling me Magnet Magnuson. <laughs> Stop smiling, it's not funny. Oh dear, Magnet Magnuson. Right, that's it. I'm going to prove it to all of you. Give me that knife. No, don't be silly. Give it here. No, cut the... Cut, no, stop right, it. I'm, I'm no. going to prove it. I'm going to no, prove it. don't you, darling, okay. don't... Ah, oh, for ah, goodness ah, sake. Ah, oh, oh, that's awful. Oh, look, see, look. Oh, look. Ah. Oh, no, wait, it was the other arm. Oh, for ah. goodness sake. Wait, where are you going? It was the other arm. It was the other arm. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, I'm losing a lot of blood here. Call a doctor. You sure you don't need a blacksmith? Oh, very funny. Well, Ryan, that was amazing, fascinating and interesting, but time marches on. Podcasts are a fleeting enjoyment. We have to move to the next thing. It's time to bring out the Dursalator. Well, Pete, I thought this week we'd do something a little bit different. So instead of the Dursalator, I've got 
The Junilator. The Junilator? Yes. It's only the month of June. No, no, no. Dune with a D. Oh, right. Yes. In honour of June Part 2 coming out in the uh, picture houses. Ah, right. Yes, I saw June Part 1 and very much enjoyed it, so I'm excited. Well, June Part 2 is coming out very soon. So I thought we could do something special. You remember like we did with our episode on Star Wars and Lord of the Rings? Ah, yes, yes, yes. A new and fictional universe. Exactly. So we're going to do a History Happened Everywhere on the Juniverse! I have plugged in all of the time periods from the Juniverse books and movies, and I've also allocated topics as well, so the, the Junilator is ready to rock and roll. We can randomise whenever you're ready. There's like a thousand books, isn't there? There's quite a lot of stuff, Junewise, I think. You better get reading, buddy. All right, well, I'm ready then. Okay, well, the place, obviously, is the Juniverse. Got it. So let's do the time and the topic. Your time is... The prequels. That's 200 BG to 10,191 AG. I know the BGs. Uh, I'm not sure what BG is, though. I don't know the prequels. I don't know anything about any of that. Right. Well, there you go. Let's hit your topic. See if that helps. And your topic is... Mindfulness. Oh, oh. Oh, the little I do know tells me that is actually pretty lucky i don't know were they were they special topics or were they our normal topics no these are these are regular topics oh then i have got very lucky i think really okay i think so dang it i was hoping for something really hard (laughs) knitting yeah (laughs) knitting in the universe no you have got mindfulness in the universe during the prequels era which is 200 bg to 10191 ag whatever that means so okay. Good luck, Peter. <laughs> That's I feel exciting. Like I should say a catchphrase or something, but I know none of it. So bring us all the facts, sand worm man. Spice, spice up your life. <laughs> <laughs> spice up your life. <laughs> I will not let you down, Captain. Okay, that is our show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, as ever, if you'd like to get in touch about any of the things we've talked about or just say hello, you can reach out to us through our website, hhepodcast.com, or email Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com. Yeah, we really do love hearing from you, and you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. If you're on Mastodon, Instagram, Facebook or X, you can find us at HHE Podcast. And if you subscribe to those, you're going to get an alert every time we post extra content, like facts we didn't use, pictures of balls of wool, what a knitting needle holder looks like and all those other bits and bobs. And if you, like us, feel that life is meaningless without an HHE t-shirt or other merchandise, you can, of course, purchase some. We have mugs, we've got pads, we've got t-shirts, we've got hooded sweatshirts, and we've got tote bags, all at hhepodcast.com forward slash merch. That's right. I've got a mug. (laughs) All the cool kids have a mug. (laughs) You're right. (laughs) I'm having a stroke. (laughs) (laughs) We even have t-shirts with Dursley's face on. We do, and they are actually my favourite, genuinely. Uh, But whatever you do, we will be back again soon with... The Verdict. But until then, a huge thanks to you, Ryan. And a huge thanks to you, Pete. And that's it. I guess all that's left to say is... You've been listening to... History Happened Everywhere. Ryan. Hey, Pete. What the heck are all these doing in here? All these what? These sheep. Oh, these are my sheep. I'm an urban shepherd now. An urban shepherd? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like a regular shepherd, but urban because there's no fields around. Hence why they're in the flat. Well, that's ridiculous. We can't live in a house full of sheep. Well, that's a shame because it pays really well. You know, I think we can live in a house full of sheep. There's only one problem, though. I don't get paid if I lose any of the sheep. Well, how's that a problem? You can't lose a sheep in here, surely. Well, the problem is, every time I try to count them... You fall asleep? No, they just keep moving around a lot and they all look the same. Oh, Ryan, you're an idiot. What's that? You heard. That's right, Pete. I do.
Crikey, mate. Crikey.